and welcome to episode 35 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. Our guest this week has had a big impact on the public sports analytics world during his time at ESPN, and he's still working in sports now with Google Cloud and as a consultant for the Dallas Cowboys. It's Alok Patani, who many may know from presentations at Sloan and other analytics conferences. Alok worked in ESPN's research department for several years, then was a founding member of the ESPN analytics team in 2010. He helped develop ESPN's total quarterback rating, their basketball power index, and many other team and player metrics. Moved on to Google in 2016, and he's now a data science developer advocate for Google Cloud. In our conversation, Alok will talk about what Google Cloud is and what he does for them, how Google works with sports organizations like Major League Baseball and the NCAA, what BigQuery is and how he uses it, how the volume of sports data has changed in recent years, what he does as a consultant for the Cowboys, what NFL teams are doing in the analytics space, and how NGS data has changed that, advice for students looking to get into sports analytics, why he chose sports and ESPN out of college, developing and communicating metrics at ESPN, being the researcher on the LeBron James Decisions Show, and how he combines his love for data with his love for ice cream. Alok even gives us some discussion topics for Albert Lakata and myself to dive into afterward from when we all worked at ESPN together, including an unlikely NCAA tournament bracket and the Mavericks and referee Dan Crawford. So this is a fun one. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with Google Cloud's Alok Patani. We're joined now on expected value by Alok Patani, who works for a little company called Google as a data science developer advocate. He's also one of expected value's biggest fans. So we finally gave in, decided to have him on the show. Alok, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Uh, as you said, I'm a big fan of the show. Um, you've had tons of good guests. I think I've listened to every episode and uh, really like your recent run of guests. And uh, hopefully I can I can keep up the high standard. All right, we'll see what we can do. So let's start uh, like we do with most guests by talking about what you do right now. You, as I said, you're a data science developer advocate, which initially makes me think of someone who's running around the room cheering while everyone else is locked in <laughs> coding and whatnot. I know that's not what you do. Uh, <laughs> so what does a data science developer advocate do at Google? Yeah, it's certainly a mouthful of a title. And um, if it sounds made up, it's because it kind of is. So we have developer advocates um, at Google. The area I work in is Google Cloud. And the idea is these are people who talk to developers, um, engineers, you know, people who kind of hands on keyboard are building things about how to use Google Cloud from a technical standpoint to enable whatever it is they want to do in their business workloads. So my area of expertise is data scientists, data science. So what I do is use uh, show how to use Google Cloud to do data science, advocate for Google Cloud in the use of data science. And that's where all the sorts of um, words come together. Um, this can be done through back in the uh, pre-COVID days, conferences, uh, now virtual conferences, blog posts, talks, code samples. There's many different ways um, we go about this, uh, and we'll talk about some of them. But the idea is to, uh, to basically demonstrate how to use Google Cloud for data science to sort of improve workflow efficiency in data science. So you're sort of a translator. I think there's a lot of these roles coming up in the sports world, especially where someone needs to understand the data and needs to understand the game or something along those lines. So you're kind of, you understand how a data scientist is going to use this and you're communicating back and forth to the engineers to work with them to make that product, Google Cloud, as good as it can be for the people who are going to use it. Is that a good, accurate summary? Communication is very important, I agree. Um, it is two-way. You are working with the people who are working on the actual products, and you're working with the sort of external people who are interested in using Google Cloud. It's, it's very technical, though, also. like we, we actually write the code, test out the products, okay. try to figure out what is what is and isn't there, and how does it work? Can I demonstrate it for this use case? You know, we're going to talk about sports. I go to a sports conference. How can I use these tools for sports? All these sorts of things. It's very technical, um, but yeah, communication is definitely an important part. So how does the job overlap with sports? Obviously, Google is not itself a sports company, but obviously has its hand in the sports world somewhat. So how does what you do interact with the sports world? Yeah, um, in a couple of different ways. So one is that Google Cloud has partnerships with sports organizations. Part of getting the word on Google Cloud out there is, is marketing, right? So how, yep. how do we do that? You know, we do that through partnerships with various organizations. So uh, I've been in cloud for a little under two years now. 
Um, when I joined, one of the reasons I found it really a cool role is I got to work on the partnership with the NCAA, um, right, which is tied to March Madness and, and what we can do with them. Um, and now I'm working on a partnership with Major League Baseball. And in both cases, you know, the reach of those organizations, particularly at certain points of the year, is, is extremely high. And, you know, March Madness is one of the most popular sporting events in the U.S. MLB playoffs, same thing. So the idea is to do more than just kind of put our Google Cloud logo on there. It's to talk more about the actual technical things that we worked on with NCAA, with MLB, with their data, and really demonstrate the value in these like contextual ways. That's where the sports analytics piece comes in, right? Where we can work with baseball data, we can work with basketball data, um, and we can come up with interesting metrics, interesting insights, and and then show how Google Cloud enables them in this you know newer, faster, better better way in some cases. The other sort of use cases that sports data, and, and I don't need to tell you or your listeners this, is is really interesting, right? Like there's some, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a sports fan, um, even if you're only a casual sports fan, there's like really good data collection in sports relative to other industries. So it also serves as really good data for just generic demos, right? So if I want to talk about like, oh, like I used uh, BigQuery to show this thing, we have this public data set and out of this public data set, what I want to do is talk about the two most famous athletes, like intuitively people know this sort of thing. And, if, you know, there's motion tracking data in sports and, and things like this too, where you can really show the power of um, scalability of, of certain tools and things like that. So those are kind of the two main ways I think of how sports plays a role. Um, occasionally I'll spend a lot of time working on partnerships, other times maybe less sports, but uh, it's kind of always in the back of my mind of ways to thread it through what I'm working on. Let's talk a little about the baseball side first. According to the press release this year, Google Cloud was named the official cloud partner and official cloud data and analytics partner of Major League Baseball, which is another mouthful. From (laughs) especially a public-facing standpoint in particular, what does that mean for what you're doing with MLB? From the public standpoint, I think uh, MLB is a very tech-forward organization. I've been working working with them for a few months, and uh, you know they... They have this great system called StatCast to track uh, all the players and the ball throughout throughout play. They have an equally awesome system on the back end for doing some of their business analytics types of stuff. All of that has been um, moved to Google Cloud, and that means a lot of things, like how their data collection is there, um, their data processing, analytics, the machine learning they intend to do, storage, all of that has been moved to Google Cloud because they found Google Cloud to be a really good tool for the types of work they've done. Um, so that's kind of their take on it. Ours is, uh, you know, they have really interesting data. Um, they have all sorts of like, you know, real real world use cases, uh, data collection in the parks, and then how do we do ticketing and things that apply to industries outside of sports as well. So that's kind of the the big picture of of the partnership. And then as I talked about, um, you know, there's a, there's a marketing angle for our, uh, Google Cloud as well. So yeah, I think big picture, it's just a, it's a really cool like tech organization, essentially in sports, MLB is, and, uh, you know, they found us to have really good tools. We find their problems and challenges interesting. So it's been, um, a, a really good, at least so far start to a partnership, uh, and we'll see, you know, there's lots of other ideas on the plate for the, for next season and beyond. Yeah. And what about, uh, you mentioned the college basketball NCAA tournament. I know last couple of years, not this year, of mm-hmm. course, but before that we saw Google commercials during mm-hmm. the NCAA yeah. tournament. I kept looking for you. You didn't show up. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> but uh, wh- what are you doing with the NCAA tournament? How does that partner work with the NCAA? So it was a it was cool partnership. So I, I wasn't on the cloud team the first year. I was in 2019. Um, and the narrative, you know, the sort of campaign narrative that year was working with students, college students, so that they were on the commercials and not me. Um, so the idea there was we we recruited a bunch of student developers from around the country and sort of gave them the access to NCAA data, Google Cloud, um, and, and uh, access to myself and my boss, Eric, and, and a few others to how to basically do data science to some degree, how to do sports analytics, and how to use mm-hmm. Google Cloud. Um, and allowed them to innovate and kind of uh, talk about Google Cloud. We held a hackathon that was related to this. That was a lot of fun too. This was right when I was getting started in this area. And um, the idea was, again, this like contextual data thing. So they made predictions on, on uh, they did analysis on uh, concepts like explosiveness, competitiveness. Um, you know, I was also developing metrics for our own use that were used on the Turner and CBS broadcasts, um, you know, things like, you know, time spent leading or some of the schedule adjusted metrics for 
field goal, effective field goal percentage, all these sorts of things that um, can tell different parts of the stories for these teams. Some of them were used on broadcast. Some of them we wrote about on digital. Um, again, the TV part was, was really tied to the students and they made some like sort of live predictions, how many uh, ties or lead changes might there be in a specific game based on pregame factors and all sorts of just like trying to, again, show the value of Google Cloud um, more than just saying, hey, you know, Google Cloud, the official cloud of the NCAA. So, you know, I know Google Cloud is the giant storage system in some ways. What else is Google bringing that, you know, is different than, you know, just having a giant, whatever, hard drive or cloud drive? What, what else yeah. is coming in that as part of that package that helps these organizations out? Yeah, so I think there's way more than storage, I guess, is the key. It's right. basically a set. It's like um, uh, the best way I can describe it is a set of hardware and software that allows you to do things, right? So we have um, the same infrastructure, right, that powers Google search, that powers YouTube, things that people, you know, billions of people use for, um, you know, many, many times a day throughout the day. Yep. That inf- Like just to run that system, Google had to develop really impressive infrastructure, right? Like they're processing data, handling requests at a level that, you know, was not seen before. That infrastructure evolves over time. And eventually they were like, hey, this is infrastructure we can provide to other companies. Um, And obviously, you know, Amazon and Microsoft have been doing that as well. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, um, you know, our set of hardware and then software tools will enable your business to do more. In this case of data science, it would be to handle more data. It's to handle different data. So, you know, we talked about storage. Um, at some point, data is, you know, tables and columns and, and, and uh, you know, rows and columns, things like that, which I'm more traditionally used to, but also text is data, video is data, images are data. Um, and all these sorts of things can be handled by different Google, to- Google tools that involve storage, that involve, um, you know, natural language processing, image processing, machine learning, all these tools come together and now you can really innovate what you're doing in your, in your business or in your organization. And, and that's actually, uh, you know, going back to MLB, like that's what they want to do. They want to innovate for the game for uh, the future. You know, baseball has been super popular in America for well over a century, um, but they want to keep up with the next generation, new fans and these sorts of things. So they see essentially a different Google cloud tools or the combination of them coming together. Um, I, I, from like a, when I, talk about just generic data science, I say we try to get more insights from data faster. Yeah. And the film room is a good example, I think, for MLB, that mm-hmm. they're doing a better job making video more mm-hmm. easily searchable and all available to anybody this year. So that's one good spot I would point people to if they're looking. Uh, what about uh, BigQuery? You mentioned that uh, a few answers ago. What yeah. is BigQuery? What makes it so powerful uh, for anyone to use, especially in sports? So I love BigQuery. Um, and again, I am not in sales, so I actually do not get um, paid anymore if you use it or not. Obviously, it's good for me if you do. So I, I, I'm coming from a very like natural advocacy standpoint. I really love BigQuery. The two biggest things for me are it's so it is a relational um, sort of database product, Google's relational database product, and uh, it's SQL based. So uh, SQL, which is a popular query language going back decades that um, can be used to get data out of databases and now so much more. So it's based on that. And um, the idea is you have a scalable data warehouse where where Google handles the infrastructure. So what that means is if you have billions of rows of data in a table and multiple tables and all this stuff, um, in the past, you you would have to have people who can manage that. So when you want to go query it, like one, you might have to write it in a very different way. Two, you might have some database administrator to help you say, okay, what you need is this many co- computers or this many nodes or something like that. BigQuery handles all that for you. Um, so when I, you know, I'd write the same SQL query for uh, a table that's 10 rows as I would for 10 billion, essentially. And then it handles the infrastructure in the back end. So that's like the technical piece. The other part that I like is the feature set is ever expanding. So I kind of like SQL once I got into it, going back to like, you know, the ESPN days. Um, the version of SQL that has been developed for BigQuery at Google is super powerful, has really pushed the boundaries, I think, of what I thought could be done with SQL in terms of um, data processing. Now we can do model fitting in, in SQL and then get predictions off of this and all these sorts of, again, things that are very useful for data science workflows. So scalability and these like really cool um, features that, yeah, like R and Python, which I think are really great tools, have also. Um, this just allows you to do it in a different place. And once you kind of 
and, and I'm working through these things now, like put these things together, you can see some real power of doing things that before you would say, oh, I can only do this in a small subsection of my data or through um, for, for a smaller set. Now I can really think about powering through um, a bigger, bigger data set and then asking different questions. Interesting. And I imagine all this that we're talking about and the way it fits in with sports is in part just because the data in sports has grown so much. I mean, just tell me a little bit about how you've seen the data in sports just explode over the past you know, decade, really, for the most part. Yeah, so definitely applicable to sports in the latest iteration, right? So like big, big data goes back um, many decades in other fields. Um, in sports, you know, if you go back to like the sort of Bill James level of analysis, like maybe we had game level data um, right. and then eventually we got to play level data. And that's like pretty interesting. But if you think about like uh, an NFL game, there may only be 200 or so plays at the most. Right? right. So like, okay. And now you have info on every player on every play. So that's kind of big, but now with tracking data, right. Which is across every sport, we know the location of all the players and the ball multiple times a second. That's basically true across um, all the major pro leagues some colleges yep. and things too. Right. Um, I know at true media, you, have made a ton of progress working with this sort of data. Yep. So this is, you know, now on a scale where like one game is more, more than the entirety of baseball history or something. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, um, and if you see the latest with like what MLB is doing with their latest version of StatCast, which has been, um, you know, some demonstrations have been put out there. It's now each player is, um, an 18 point pose representation, right? So now they're not just a dot moving in space, that's all their limbs moving in space. So that means 18 times more data, right? So, um, you know, again, scalability of your tools are, it becomes more and more important. And uh, something like BigQuery is is exactly designed for that. Other tools like, um, uh, you know, Google Cloud has as well, data flow and things are designed to get the data in the form, like just to like store the data is one, one thing. And then like getting it from like, raw raw like storage all the way to the database is is a feat in and of itself right i mean mm-hmm. you, i actually don't need to tell you this your company is very well worse than that so no i remember reading i forget which baseball book it was but it was about five ten years ago when the Statcast data started coming in some team got you know they were going to get a data dump of a handful of games and mm-hmm. just like that many games like oh yeah we don't have anything that can process this just because, you know, that's how much exponentially it grew so fast, which, like I said, it's pretty crazy and uh, you need these big tools to handle. You're talking about NFL, so let's transition. You do some consulting work for the Dallas Cowboys. Mm-hmm. I know some of that is proprietary and we can't get into the weeds too much, but at a high mm-hmm. level, what are you doing when you're working with the Cowboys? I work with the football sort of research football analytics staff there so the um their director of football research is tom robinson who's a great guy and they have another analyst named adam bonderhar uh came out of the nfl big yeah, data ball um another uh really talented guy um and i and and they're sort of um on the ground there in, in North texas um i you know part-time and remote so i don't have the sort of day-to-day responsibilities that others you know football analytics staffers do i kind of work on bigger picture things longer term things um, the idea is to, you know, help the Cowboys win games. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, big picture that could involve um, doing analysis related to, um, you know, during the season, like we're, we're right now when we're recording, like the coaching staff or um, game planning and uh, other times of the year, it might be more related to scouting and draft, answering the questions that the team is answering anyways, like who, right. should, who should we draft or what areas of our team are in better or worse shape. Um, but answering them with data. And as you discussed and we've talked about, there's an enormous amount of football data. The tracking data is one of the pieces, but not the only one. Um, so you now have like multiple quantitative ways to answer questions that previously were answered, answered qualitatively. So I was say, how yeah. have you seen, you mentioned the tracking data, the NGS data in the past few years. How have you seen that transform what teams can do and what they're looking for analytics-wise? I think it it is really uh, you know again I can't give away too much here but the the idea is there's a lot of things that happen on a football field um, that previously were just kind of like you only knew what the team did right what did the offensive linemen do well a quarterback might maybe got sacked or something right so they right. they might not have done their job um, that still only happens on a pretty small fraction of plays and you know there are other plays where they also do well or not so 
um, with the tracking data and, and you've seen the work with like, uh, you know, Brian Burke, who's a, who's a person I admire a lot at ESPN has done with pass blocking and these sorts of things where you can now get much more granular measures on every play of what's going on. Um, you know, similarly for other positions, uh, you know, defensive players and things like that too, where they don't have as many measurables, but they're doing something on every play. So how can you tell what these people are doing? Uh, easier things that you can think about are like, you know, how fast is this guy? Well, we have his 40 time from when he was drafted. Is that still relevant? Like, you know, now we have really good ways to answer these questions because you know the person's speed at every play. So just kind of thinking about all the things that football people, coaches, scouts, um, you know, GMs think about, you can now put numbers to them. I'm not saying we have perfect ones for any of these and, right. and there's a lot of work to be done on this. Uh, but this is the type of thing. And uh, now, you know, if you can do that, now we can answer that question for hundreds of players, not just the few we've were able to watch on tape within a certain session. So. On the surface, I think people hear about analytics and football. Usually on TV, you're hearing about it with, with relation to fourth down attempts, going for two, both those things apply yeah. to the Cowboys this year. Um, <laughs> and you kind of already answered this a little bit, but what else does the, we'll say general public, even someone in sports analytics, who's maybe not as involved in football or a team, what, what would someone like that not necessarily understand or just, you know, not have access to understand about how football teams use data. Yeah. Um, I worked in, in media, which we'll talk about more. And, uh, you know, there's like a lot of different types of questions. So you'll have like some of the same frameworks that you would in media or, um, you know, fan facing analytics, but you might use them to answer different questions. So like, who's the best quarterback is like super interesting at ESPN and it's just not super interesting in a team environment. Right. Right. Um, one quarterback or, or two. Yeah. Or three, but... Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe certain times when you're drafting and it might be the most important thing, right. but there's so many other things that people are thinking about day to day. Um, so you can take an example of like you're, you know, um, in training camp and you have 90 people on the roster. Right. And, who you decide to like even bring to your roster might dis might dictate who makes your team. And then, you know, we've seen this year and it happens every year. There's tons of injuries. So your starters are not going to start um, all the games. So who do you have there? What's your process for getting that next person? All that can be done quantitatively, right? So who, which players do we think are interesting across the league and, and these sorts of things. So those types of decisions, right, which don't get too much the light of day are still mm -hmm. fairly important and teams are doing that in the draft, right? They're create every team is creating some version of a draft board. How do they do that? Right. Um, and there are quantitative elements of, of that in, in general, before any, you know, tracking was done, we, you know, players were graded and ranked that is quantitative to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. One so now, yeah. So um, how can you incorporate sort of the modern analytics, the new data we have, the new metrics we have into that, process and, and make it better is, is the challenge. But like my point being like, they're already doing some, some very quantitative things. And it's just um, a matter of like thinking of them as a quantitative thing. And then how do your, how does your quantitative background kind of fit in there is the, um, is, is what I think is, um, has been the most interesting for me in working with the Cowboys last couple of years. All right, let's back up about 15 years or so. You majored in statistics at Boston university, go Terriers. At yeah. the time, I don't think there was a sports analytics major anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. So what do you tell current students who ask, hey, what should I study? What should I major in? I want to get into sports analytics. Where, how do you guide them or point them for those inevitable questions that come your way? Yeah, um, I get the question a lot, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, I think it was what I would call it was sports statistics. I didn't hear the term analytics till a couple years after college. So when, when students ask for this question, I kind of go two ways. One is like storytelling. Like, this is how I got into sports analytics. And right. These were the breaks that helped me. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the older I get, the less relevant that is to them, right? Because <laughs> right, right. Um, everything you just talked about. So I, I don't have like a specific um, major recommendations because um, to some degree, like the, one, like the ones that are coming along now are different. Like data science, I think, is a very powerful concept. That's another term I had not did not hear until well after I graduated. Um, so if you can major in data science, I think that's great if that's what you're interested in. But sure, could you major in you know more traditional statistics, math, economics? I worked with data scientists at Google who did electrical engineering, electrical engineering PhDs. It's an idea of like, can you work with data, think logically, and like learn stuff on the fly, right? And there's tons of majors that kind of fit in that thing. If you specifically want to get into sports analytics, I think the education is one piece. The other element nowadays 
it, the good news is there are lots of different jobs. There's way more than when, when, you know, we were looking for these jobs. Yep. Um, we're not even looking for them because we didn't know they existed 10 yeah, to 15 yeah. years ago, but you know, now differentiation is important, you know, keeping up on what's going on in the industry is important. The bar is higher, right? Like the analysis people who are getting into the industry have done now already is, is, is really good compared to what I would have done as a college student. So, you know, I encourage them to um, do some of their own work if possible and, and publish it. And now even in the most recent sort of five years, you have all these sorts of formal ways to do that, whether it's a sports analytics club at your school whether it's the big data bowl that the NFL league office puts on, the NBA has put on a hackathon, other, uh, I think true media has put on hackathons, all these sorts of formal ways to actually get your, uh, you know, the Sloan sports analytics conference hackathon I'll go on. There's formal ways to kind of present, to put your um, research or or work you've done out there into a uh, setting that is exactly for people to look at. So I think those um, things become, become more interesting, more relevant now, um, and what I would recommend students to look for. And I'm sure you had plenty of good job opportunities or ways you could go with things after uh, leaving BU. You had interned mm-hmm. at ESPN and then you ended up joining a Stats Info mm-hmm. Group straight out of school. Why sports? Why ESPN for you instead of you know whatever else was out there as possibilities? Yeah, good question. Um, I always loved sports growing up, just like others um, who talk about going to sports analytics, love math, that sort of thing is... Um, is, it was was super true for me. I didn't really think too much about it until I read Moneyball, the whole you know typical yep. story for someone my age. I think the the ESPN internship was was actually very crucial um, for me. So I had um, the good fortune of doing a couple internships while I was at BU. Um, so I loved math. I ended up deciding to major in statistics. Felt pretty solid about that, and um, I worked um, an internship at the Gillette company, which is based in South Boston, doing analysis of shave test data. And I learned a lot, um, but I didn't personally find shave test data that interesting. (laughs) Then around that time, I I found it, it was a really good internship. Don't get me wrong. I actually um, did it, did it for multiple semesters in between. I would be in the summers. uh, One summer I was an intern, one summer I was a temp at ESPN and I was working in the research department and it was, I mean, it was a blast, right? Like we got to, you, you were in the same department um, we got to work on sports, come across uh, commentators, you know, literally you're watching sports for a living. Like, and I just found that super exciting. Um, I had kind of realized by the time I was ready to like join full time that this sort of quantitative analytics or analysis movement, whatever it was being called at the time was, was a thing and could, could kind of work out in the long run um, for me. So I think that's, that's what really put it over the top. I had experience with ESPN, the stats and info department, and felt pretty good about the ability to use um, some of my statistical background in sports analytics eventually. So I think that's what stood yeah. up. So eventually ESPN started in sports analytics department, and you were one of the founding members of that. One of the first things you did was develop QBR for ESPN. How did that come about, I guess? And where do you start when you're like, hey, make a new quarterback rating, go. What do you do? <laughs> um, you, <laughs> you're like, hey, uh, we hired Dean Oliver. Hey, Dean, can you uh, <laughs> do this quarterback rating? Yeah, so um, uh, I think uh, uh, this is story might have been told a little bit on your podcast by other guests, but worth telling again, we started the analytics team uh, about a decade ago with uh, Jeff Bennett, our former boss who's still uh, at ESPN, Albert, who works with you at True Media, and Dean Oliver, who's now an assistant coach for the Wizards and basketball analytics pioneer, basically, right? Yep. So he came over. He was super interested in working on football. He had done basketball for a while. He also liked football. So Dean was obviously like the most experienced person, knew how to build metrics and stuff. Um, Albert and I were eager and had really um, strong statistics backgrounds, and it worked at ESPN. So that was helpful, but it was just a matter of like putting all the pieces together. So um, getting started, you know, the, the company was like, Hey, what's your first big project? It was a, a initiative called the year of the quarterback. So it made sense to do a quarterback rating. Um, NFL is, is, you know, the most popular sport going. So, um, it made a lot of sense from that, from that aspect, but then it was like, okay, what framework should we use? Where's the data? How do you even process data? So we had to learn a lot in, I don't know, five to six months. And then they're like, Hey, we're going to have this show hosted by the Monday night football crew at the time to debut the metric. Um, so that was an awesome, but also super stressful, right. To get everything in line for that. Now 
Um, all the stuff you talk about in terms of communication, like we're learning on the fly because like we haven't communicated it. We haven't built a metric, much less communicated it. So mm-hmm. a lot of like learning happened. It ended up being a pretty good, it, it was a pretty good result, I think, given everything yeah. we had to do. But more importantly, it set the tone for like, after, afterwards, we're like, okay, here's what we need to do. Here's you know, how we need to fill different jobs in the future. What type of roles we need on the team. Here's how to think about communication differently. Everything was came about in that, project that then could help us to know how to do do better um, the next time. As you mentioned, you have to explain these metrics to to talent, to producers, to researchers, et cetera. What mm-hmm. were the most important things in communicating numbers and these complicated things to non-data types, we'll say? Yeah. To be clear, I think you do a very good job of this. You did a talk for us at a Google meetup a few months back on this. I think it was spot on. So one, you. Watch, watch Paul's talk. Um, <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Two, to be frank, I don't think I was very good at this when, when I started <laughs> at ESPN. I was like, oh, cool. Like, you know, regression, I know how to explain regression simply. And I'll explain the expected points as a regression on this and, you know, down the distance and I'll, I'll show this graph. And like, yeah, it didn't, didn't quite, um, didn't quite make it. So yeah. what, um, <laughs> what, what I, what I eventually got towards um, is like, you know, things you've talked about, like using their language visuals for people who are more visual learners, um, correlating it with things that actually happen on the field, showing actual video of actual plays that, um, you know, that illustrate what you're talking about. Um, one other element that I thought, excuse me, was really useful for um, ESPN in particular was you, uh, you know, so you, you talk about in like football, like watching tape or other sports, yeah. watching tape of mm-hmm. players. So I would, um, spend a lot of time watching tape of our analysts working on college football, right? ESPN puts out tons of college football content all the time. There's college game day. There's a daily show. There's all these games. And I'm, I'm a huge college football fan. So I'm watching this anyways. Right. But I, now as I'm working on this, I'm thinking, like, what did they say? Here's how they talk about fourth downs. Here's how they talk about um, which teams should make the playoffs. Right. And it's some of these like listening and then realizing how to like actually turn this into metrics that was really um, was really useful for some of the college football work. So Reese Davis had this concept that he talked about a lot and others did too, but he was really big on it. This best first, most deserving. So who are the best teams who are the most deserving teams? Um, and that literally eventually led us to develop two different rating systems. Yes, there was difficulty in communicating that, but you could leverage what he was saying, what other analysts were saying when they said this team, I think would win, but this team has a better resume. And like, so really listening to what they've, said and then uh, this is a dean oliver quote but take take what the words they say translate them to numbers that's like your data science expertise subject matter expertise and then translate them back to words um so i think we once we kind of got the hang of that we had more success we could get things um, through more seamlessly working in concert with the talent and the um, you know writers production crew all the different people at espn so i think the listening and really watching and understanding what they're already talking about how you can quantify it was was key I have to ask about one of the probably one of the least analytic-y things you did at ESPN, but also one of the most prominent that people still talk about. We just celebrated the tenth anniversary, if you will, of the Decisions Show, which I know you were the researcher on at the time. Yeah. What yeah. was that experience like for you? <laughs> um, super memorable, obviously. <laughs> so I'm a very big NBA fan. Actually, one of my favorite sports growing up is basketball. I'm like an NBA historian before, you know, stats, analytics, anything. So big basketball fan. As I was working in the research department, I think one of the areas that I was kind of focusing on, this is before we started the sports analytics team, was NBA research. So I was like, you know, I would research some of the shows we worked on uh, that, that involved the NBA, but I was probably fourth or fifth on the totem pole there. And um, ESPN knew that that summer of free agency would be a big one with um, LeBron or some of the other free agents that were out there. Right. Um, but I don't, you know, this was before NBA free agency was like an event, right? right? So like they, you know, a lot of people who worked on the NBA had been pretty busy working on the finals. Some others worked in the draft and then there was the beginning of free agency and they're like, okay, we did our stuff. And like, yeah, that was probably their time to take off. Or whatever. Yeah. So the decision, you know, I wasn't clearly high enough to know anything about what was going on behind the scenes, but it came together really quickly. And they're like, Oh, you're going to research this like free agency special next Thursday. I'm like, cool. Like, I'll do it. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> they're like, it's going to be a LeBron show. I was like, Oh, okay. Like, 
that sounds cool. And then like a day before they're like, they start promoting this on every show, the decision. I was like, I didn't even know this. I thought this was just an NBA free agency special on you know, July 8th. So from the standpoint of the show, like there's certain times where you're, um, you have a lot of influence and a lot of work to do as a researcher. And this was not one of them. So, um, <laughs> but I will say this, we had like projected lineup graphics for uh, if LeBron goes to the heat, if LeBron goes to the bulls or the Knicks and the other stays with the Cavs, these are couple of different options that were being talked about at the time. And then on the side, one of our reporters is saying he's going to the heat well before the decision. So I'm checking that heat lineup graphic. That's like, I'm like, man, millions of people are going to see this. They better not, you know, better get Dwayne Wade's name spelled right. Like <laughs> these, that, that like one or two graphics that made it in. I, I was really, really like double checking. And then, yeah, it was just like, just kind of like, I remember where I was sitting in the studio and, um, you know, Will Bond's asking me some, like, can you print out my interview questions and this stuff? And, it was it was an amazing time, and now to like think about it ten years later, um, how far the NBA has come, how far everything LeBron, uh, you know, personally, professionally has come, it's, it's pretty amazing. So aside yeah. from sports and data science, your favorite thing in the world might be ice cream. Any nerdy things that you've done combining data and ice cream? I suspect the answer is yes. Uh, the answer is yes. I do love ice cream, and and why not? It's such a great, enjoyable treat. Um, <laughs> so. A couple of years ago, for some reason that I can't quite recall, I decided to try to track every ice cream place I had ever been to um, <laughs> in a spreadsheet. So as you know, in any good data science and um, journey, the first step is data collection. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, how will I do this? So I had um, a bunch of different ways. Like obviously I remembered a bunch off the top of my head and then I was just thinking through all these trips I took and everything. So I have a spreadsheet now that is as complete as I think. And now I keep it updated of every ice cream place I've ever been to. It's up to 170 or so plus. Um, It's a little, you know, the the tracking's like, okay, I went to, you know, Ben and Jerry's here and Ben and Jerry's there, those two different. So they are right now counted as different things. So I can, again, just like any other data science problems, there's always questions about how you collect and represent (laughs) your data. So yeah, that's the, um, that's the thing. And and now I keep this, keep this updated. And now that it's like a thing, I try to find out, find new places. If, you know, again, pre COVID we're traveling and I can get to a specific ice cream place, um, you know, in the, in the area that's like well-known for something. I I try to go out of my way to do that. Nice. That's good stuff. I I love that. (laughs) It seems almost any data type you talk about (laughs) has something like this. So it's good to to know the ice cream secrets. And uh, finally, before we get into the playing favorite segment, as you know, after we're done talking, uh, I'll do a post-game show of sorts with Albert Larcata, whom you've also known for years. Anything I need to bring yeah. up with Albert while we're talking yes. about you? I have multiple topics. So first of all, um, I, I want to make sure I said this. Like I worked with you, Paul, at ESPN, and uh, you're a great colleague. You taught me a ton about soccer. Um, I think I knew that you know, put ball in goal and only goalie can use hands. Everything else... <laughs> you were able to t- t- uh, teach me. And it was super, super useful as I worked on the World Cup, uh, at least two World Cups there that and the Euros. Yeah, you so, taught me yeah. cricket and I taught you soccer. It was a good trade-off. Yeah, no, it was a really good trade-off. Um, Albert, I also worked cl- like very closely with on the analytics team, was a tremendous um, colleague. I have lots of good memories working with him. And obviously I still bother him now through working with True Media. Um, the questions I have for him based on our time at ESPN, I think you can ask him about a couple topics. One is the bracket made by Liam's mom for yes. uh, NCAA tournament and Mike and Mike. I want him to talk I about think, that. I think I was on Mike and Mike still at that time. Yeah. You might've been. So this could be a really good topic for, for you all to discuss. Um, second NBA referee, Dan Crawford and the Mavericks. Uh, I remember this one. Um, and I want his comments on that. And then um, finally, and you just mentioned cricket, like Albert got pretty into cricket uh, through our time sitting across from each other as well. And I'm interested to see if teams have implemented this. Um, my cricket following has diminished a bit, but uh, he had some really cool strategies for moneyballing cricket and uh, how to optimize run production. So um, I would I want to hear his his latest and greatest on that as well. All right, I'm going to guess before having talked to him, his big cricket strategy is swing for the fences like his boy Chris Gale always does. Yeah, I think he summarized it well. So let's <laughs> let's see if he's got more more now. Do there. All right, so we'll wrap things up with our playing favorite segment. Rip through a number of your favorites. Your favorite number and why? Favorite number is eight. Um, it's nice, symmetric, even power of two, and 
Uh, I was a Cowboys fan growing up, Troy Aikman. There you go. Favorite athlete for you as a kid? Michael Jordan. Big basketball fan. Grew up in the 90s. Yeah. It's a natural. Favorite game Mm -hmm. that you have been to in person, any sport? So I've been fortunate to go to a lot of cool games. One that sticks out is a couple years ago, um, the Rose Bowl. So I think it was January 1st, 2018, so the 2017 college football season. Um, the Rose Bowl was a semi, a national semifinal that year. First off, the Rose Bowl itself is tremendous. I had not been before, and it's just like a super cool setting, awesome stadium. And it's like, you know, growing up in the Northeast, but we're on New Year's Day, you're freezing your butt off. It was like 75 degrees and sunny <laughs> in the middle of the Rose Bowl. Sounds lovely. So it's like, and, um, you know, shout out to uh, our former colleague, Chris Felica. He helped with uh, getting us some decent, my, my wife and I, some decent tickets. So this is just like the setting, right? The game ended up being tremendous. It was Georgia, Oklahoma. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, double overtime, uh, Georgia won. It went back and forth, all sorts of things. Oklahoma had a big lead. Then Georgia came back. Then Oklahoma retook the lead. All sorts of big plays. One of those win probability graphs that is kind of back and forth. Um, and it was, you know, we were we were there for the Rose Bowl, and it was just tremendous to just kind of take that all in and see all, you know, the fans, the atmosphere, um, everything. It was it was awesome. Um, you know, once things hopefully return to normal, I recommend the Rose Bowl to to anyone who's into um, nice. football, college football. Yeah. Yeah. Your favorite ice cream flavor. Yeah. So I know it's supposed to be quick, but I'll, I'll give a slightly complicated <laughs> answer. So chocolate chip cookie dough is sort of the default yep. answer. Right? So if I'm going to a place, I need to know how good you are. I'm going to see if you have chocolate chip cookie dough and how good it is. But if it's a specific flavor, Ben and Jerry's half-baked, which is cookie dough and brownie dough mixed together, sort of like if you want to get it in your grocery store, convenience store, t- that type of place. And then my favorite ice cream flavor Anywhere is um, a specific place in Hamden, Connecticut, close to where I grew up, called Wentworth's. They have an ice cream flavor called Cookie Monster. As soon as um, I'm able to travel there again, I will be getting that. Cookie Monster, Hamden, Connecticut at Wentworth's. For those writing that down. All right. And finally, your favorite how did I get here moment where you can just kind of appreciate what some of the things that have come your way and where you've gotten to uh, professionally. Yeah. Again, I've been fortunate to have a number of these. there is one, it's a little bit longer, but I think um, it's pretty interesting given where we're at now in the sports analytics world. So this was pretty early before the analytics team started at ESPN. I think it was the end of 2009. For whatever reason, the ESPN's president at the time, George Bodenheimer, wanted to have a meeting with the stats and information group, um, sort of like leaders and, and a couple people. So, um, uh, you know, we talked about Jeff Bennett, who was who's the leader of that group right now, who's the head of research at the time, he kind of asked me to like be part of this presentation. And we had multiple people from Stats and Information Group talking about the different areas. And we rehearsed the presentation. Like you had note cards for exactly what you're supposed to say and, you know, make sure you don't say anything else, right? And like, um, I don't, I think I had like possibly two topics to discuss. One was some NBA crunch time ratings I had done, which is early analytics for research. And the other might've been, um, Belichick fourth and two. One of the two was the only thing I was supposed to talk about. And um, so we go in the room and we're not sure if he's like going to listen to our presentation, ask questions at the end, uh, if anyone else is there. So George had a right hand man type person who's there. Um, I forget the gentleman's name, but George and him started asking questions during the presentation. So, like, okay, cool. Like we'll take them as we go. And um, the 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 George's colleague there was was really into analytics and I ended up answering like he was like oh what about Hollinger's like player ratings and what about team efficiency and uh oh did your analysis support Bill Belichick's decision to go forward on fourth down <laughs> so like I ended up speaking like uh three or four times right we're going I was like hey I'm just like young guy I've only been here like a year I'm just gonna stick to the script and we're we're talking about sports analytics well before you know this was the sports analytics team um, you know, and at one point, like, uh, again, the president of the company was like, oh, we're lucky to have all Oak and you're feeling so good about yourself. So this was like, yeah, um, when 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 I think back, like that one was a really, really special moment and then set the foundation for yeah. kind of like, yeah, all those things kind of became really um, more prominent in the coming years. No, it's a good story. Like I said, it's a precursor to where we've gotten a decade or so later. So Alec Patani, data science developer advocate for Google Cloud. Thanks so much for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me.
Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Alok Patani of Google Cloud for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Alok Patani and check our show notes for links to other work Alok has done. True Media's Albert Larcata joins me now to react to the interview, talk through Alok's discussion topics. Albert, first all, I'll just open the floor up to you. What did you take away from the conversation with our friend Alok? <laughs> okay, so lots to get to here. Um, <laughs> uh, so firstly, on a s- serious note, um, I-, I know we've talked about this before on on other pods, but in the sports analytics industry as a whole, there's generally speaking three sub-industries. There's basically working for a team, working for media, and then what I'll broadly call data technology or, you know, other companies, if, if, if you will, people like us, you know, pro football focus, people like that. So Alok has worked in all three now um, and arguably not just worked, but arguably at the highest level in all three. So obviously yeah. the Cowboys are one of the biggest sports franchises, you know, consistently at the top of those most valuable Forbes lists and all that. Um mm-hmm. Obviously, ESPN is arguably the biggest sports media company in the world. Um, and I know firsthand the huge role he played in making uh, their analytics team what it is today. Um, and then, of course, Google is Google. So he's he's had a pretty incredible career. And, and he's younger than me. I think he's like 33 or 34 years old. So he is probably quietly one of the best of the best in our industry. He's had a great career. So with that out of the way, <laughs> <laughs> enough nice stuff. Let's let's tell some stories. There you go, Alok. You can pay me later. But yeah, so <laughs> let's talk about the ice cream first. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, what a nerd. Uh, yes. Secondly, so proud of him. So proud of him. Secondly, I think he needs to make this Google Doc public for the world to see. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if if we can't see what he's doing with the Cowboys, which he won't get into, right. let's see his ice cream rankings. Let's see if he's a good judge of talent or not. I think that's that's the fair thing to do. That's true. I mean, I lived in Connecticut for 10 years, and I never went to Wentworth's in Hamden, and I don't think I ever heard of it. So this yeah. information needs to get public. There you go. So Alok, I'm calling you out. Make that public. Put it on Twitter. Let's see it. <laughs> um, and then the second thing, I know he's trying to get me in trouble by talking about Dan Crawford. So yeah. I spent so much time in 2011 studying Dan Crawford. Too much time. Let me set the scene real quick. So basically, Mark Cuban, the Mavs owner, had complained about Dan Crawford, and the Mavs numbers were generally, uh, I forget if it was the wins or points, whatever it was. Dan Crawford seemed, just looking at the raw numbers, to be more against the Mavs than he would be against most teams. And so that's what kind of triggered Alok and you diving into this. So yeah, keep going. Yeah, exactly right. I, I don't have the exact numbers either, but there was at some point he was like Mavs were two and eighteen in their last twenty games or something like that. Um, so you know, we started going deeper. So is it just, you know, the Mavs were playing good teams? So we looked at the spread and it wasn't that much different when you look at the spread. It was maybe like four and sixteen or something like that. Yeah. Um so then I started looking at individual foul calls like was dan crawford actually calling more fouls against the mavericks than we expected and it turns out he was so we just went deeper and deeper and deeper into this and there was just no way at that time we were going to be able to like do much with it like you know we're not outside the lines or anything like that um so it it was like kind of a waste of time but it was also just really like it fascinated me and also i'm from miami i'm a heat fan they were playing the heat in the uh-huh. finals that year so there was a little bit of that going on too but. well and i remember just from kind of a, a big data takeaway i had from that and i still think of this you know from time to time is you know alok explained this as look the chances that dan crawford and the mavs would combine specifically to produce these sorts of numbers are very low but the chances that when you've got, you know, whatever it is, dozens of referees and dozens of teams, the chances that one referee and one team are somehow going to combine for results that look like this was not absurd. Now, that's not to say there was or wasn't something there, but just that this was not a tremendous outlier that you would never, ever see. It was still within you know this realm of possibility, whether or not it, you know, there was anything weird going on. You know, I don't know. But I remember Alec explaining that and. It made sense. And it's just, you know, you have so many different combinations. Something's going to be an outlier at some level. Definitely right. Yeah. I, I, that, that reminds me of, of a separate ESPN story. There was some game um, where uh, a guy in the stands caught back to back home runs. So they're back to back home runs and he caught them both. Yeah. And so some producer asked us, so what are the odds of that? And <laughs> the odds are com- incredibly different if the question is, what is the chance that this person, Joe Smith, 
caught yeah. back-to-back balls. But really, that's not the question. The question is, what is the probability any random fan in the game yeah. would have caught foul balls? So that the odds of that are obviously not as extreme. Yeah, that's why I always see different numbers for things like that. One is like, you know, one in a bajillion and one is one in half a million or something, you know, which is obviously unlikely. But, you know, you play a bajillion baseball games and eventually you get there. Right, right. Yep. And then to so to Alok's uh, cricket question, he'll he'll be ashamed of me. But my my theory from the 2011 World Cup was that was cricket teams just need to bat, especially in T20, just need to bash more like just. Every ball needs to be going for a boundary. That was a theory then, and it's still a theory now. I still haven't studied it. Well, especially, I mean, you got T20 and everything's getting shorter. And I mean, we've seen it happen in baseball, three true outcomes and all that. So you just want to carry that over to cricket, basically. Exactly. One day I will. One day I'll study it. There's there's definitely some money ball things to be done in cricket. But yeah, that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm sorry. I haven't gotten there. Yeah. We talked with uh, Corey Van Zyle of Cricket South Africa on the pod and... Uh, we're just talking about where is it going. And I'll be curious if that's where cricket goes. Because the data is not, like the data I feel like is comparable to baseball, but it's not as uh, progressive analytics-wise yet. So that that could be something. I don't know. And then the final thing Alec brought up was the bracket for Liam's mom on Mike and Mike, which we may have talked about here before. But uh, what was that story? Yeah, that was, um, that. I think that was 2011 as well, maybe 2012. Yeah, 2011. Uh, it was Yukon uh, Butler. UConn Butler, right. So Liam's mom, who's from the UK, knows nothing about American sports, especially college basketball, you know, did her bracket like everybody else did. And she her bracket ended up with UConn and Butler in the uh, national championship game, which was crazy. I think Butler was, I, I forget what seed they were, like seven, were eight, eight, nine. And UConn, I believe, was a three. Right. That, that was like a chaos year. Yeah. And she had those two right, which, of course, almost nobody else has. So that alone was a pretty unique story. Um, but then, you know how in some of these brackets, you have to put the final score of the championship game. And it was just like a terrible game. The awful. final score, both teams, I think, scored under 50. Um, yeah. It was it was just awful. And her final score was, I think, within four points for each team. Again, at such an incredibly low number. So the, the question was, oh, what are the odds of that? What's the odds that UConn Butler would make the final game and then the points? And so like you had to start figuring out all these odds. Um, so I, I was up till like, I don't know, three or four in the morning that morning putting this all together. And then Mike and Mike, which is the first live show for ESPN the next morning, I, I'd sent out a packet uh, and I get I, I was asleep, but it got picked up and uh, they, yeah. they, you know, they interviewed Liam's mom and, oh, we have the numbers on this. And it became sort of a cool little niche analytics story. Yeah, I was thinking I was on the show at that time and I thought about some more and I really I was on Sports Center which ran parallel to that. So I remember watching it and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's silly, it's fun, but I guess these are the crazy things you can do with numbers, huh? Yep. All right, thanks Albert and thanks again to Alec Patani for joining us on the podcast. If you like our conversation with Alec, check out our previous episodes with some of the guests he mentioned including Wizards assistant coach Dean Oliver, ESPN's Brian Burke and ESPN's Jeff Bennett. While you're there in the archives, please rate and review the show and share the podcast on social media and wherever you can. All that helps us continue to grow. And follow us on Twitter, at True Media Sports, for articles, graphics, notes, like the fact that the Rams are the only NFL team in the top 10 in both offensive and defensive EPA per play this season. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. 